Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are two math teachers who together, with you, the community of educators worldwide, want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. Welcome to episode three. Are you ready to make math moments that matter? I am so ready. Let's dive in. Today, we are sharing four go-to tools to fuel sense-making in math class. Here we go. Hey, Kyle. How are you doing tonight? I am doing quite swell, my friend. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Uh, Let's start off uh, like we did last um, episode. What is uh, a quick math moment win for you today? What was uh, was going on today? Oh, for me, I was working in my uh, district, Greater Essex County District School Board, and I had the pleasure of working with about 30 kindergarten teachers on math. God bless their souls. They are working so hard with all of these young children. I mean, hilarious moments in a kindergarten class, but boy, oh boy, uh, it is a busy job. So hats off to them. Uh, We had an opportunity to dive deeper into the five mathematical proficiencies. Um, Our district is uh, is going through, uh, uh, we're in the third year of our math strategy after we had a, a math task force and uh, we've set our our sights on really trying to better understand what makes students mathematically proficient. Um, so we had some pedagogical mm-hmm. documentation there and spent a significant amount of time exploring the principles of counting and quantity, as well as a guide that I had created originally up on uh, on my blog. Uh, you can actually access it, anyone who's interested, if uh, if you're teaching in you know K through three. Uh, but I would argue that uh, even even teachers in middle school really should understand how uh, counting develops. Um, you can access it at makemathmoments.com forward slash counting. Uh, but boy, what an amazing group of educators who came hungry for content knowledge. It's not every day when you have teachers wanting more discussion about counting principles like hierarchical inclusion. It was awesome stuff. Uh, how about you, John? Uh, what was your quick math moment win for today? Yeah, uh, today uh, in my in my grade nine and my grade 10 class, uh, we did one of our weekly portfolio days, uh, which is uh, – it comes down to like we make a point right from the beginning of the year to put a main focus of what we do all day, every day in those classes uh, to just get better at math. Uh, that's a big mindset for us in those classes is how can we get better at math? That's our main goal. And uh, when you think about it as a as a as a teacher, how often do we make that actionable in our classrooms? So many, so much of right. what I used to teach. Uh, and the way I used to run uh, any sort of assessment day or or lessons is like I taught a lesson and then uh, I taught another lesson and then I had another lesson and then we had a review day and then it was a quiz or a, t- a test day and then we moved on from there. Uh, whereas what, what I do right now is we uh, designate one day a week to working on improving our understanding on any previous learning goal. That's one day out of the five days. Uh, where we're going back and we're fixing up uh, any of the work that we had done before. Um, I, I, I have this idea, you know, this, I, I don't want them to accept that, you know, if they got half of it right, that that's okay. I want them to always have like the perfect so that when they look back through their notes, it's always right. 
Um, I, I, I want that. I want them to show that that growth in that, in that striving for accuracy is also important. And, and what we need to show that, that we value that to our students. So I designate one day a week to making that happen. And, um, uh, it sounds like a lot, but, uh, I, I'd actually save a ton of time when I have this one day a week. Now, uh, we're going to, you know, we're going to dive into, like what that looks like in a full episode uh, coming soon to you. Uh, but if you want to know more about that, if you're interested in uh, what those portfolio days look like or how I organize them, you can uh, you can learn about those right now at makemathmoments.com forward slash portfolio. Uh, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash portfolio. You know that, and uh, but uh, for my win today, I love these days because uh, they're always great. I, I love seeing the improvement and the understanding. Uh, they feel a sense of accomplishment on these days, and uh, you know the best part—it's all customized to the student. Uh, there's not everyone is doing the same thing on these days. It's it's very much customized to what they need to work on, um, and it's a highlight of my week. That's awesome. That's awesome. John, I was, I was actually going to ask you, uh, you know, to, to elaborate on that, I was going to ask that question and say, you know, so is this something where, you know, you control what they're all working on? And, uh, and I know the answer to that because, uh, you know, both you and I were experimenting with this, uh, this idea a couple years back. And I, and I'm sure, you know, you've, you've modified how you're doing it in your class, but, uh, I, I distinctly remember this as like a, a game changer for me as well. Um, just giving kids this opportunity. And, and the thing is too, is not only are they going back to try to improve a learning goal, but you're also, you're also assessing it and, and using that to impact the evaluation. Um, you know, be it that, uh, that next midterm or at that, the end of the, at the end of the course, like it actually matters. So students know that, you know, they're, right. they're, um, not only getting better at the mathematics, but they're also, you know, they're also getting that uh, that reward of, you know, my assessment or my grade is actually uh, more reflective of what I currently know instead of what I knew, you know, three weeks ago when when I wasn't doing so hot. Yeah, right. Like our big thing is that everything in the course counts. Kids will always say like, does this count for marks, sir? Uh, and I say everything counts. And those days count. Everything everything is going to count towards your learning. And I want to take all of that uh, if I had to give it an assessment. And, you know, and I always say like you, you, we might do a quiz on that day um, and and the kids will want to know like, oh, how did I do in the quiz? And in the quiz, I always tell them it's a snapshot of what that learning is today. It, it might change next week. And that's the great thing about those days is that it's always it's we're always improving uh, at at our learning. And I record and track and help them see that growth uh, every week. So uh, great. Those are, as I said, they're my highlight of every week. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I, and I know, you know, it gives you, I remember it giving me time to actually go and sit down with some students and do a little bit of that small group instruction that I know from the, from the secondary perspective, we all, we all struggle to try to find the time to do. So it really, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a win-win there where you get an opportunity to sit down with some students and, and really try to, um, you know, intervene and, and address some gaps that, uh, that you know are there. And uh, maybe sometimes students aren't too sure what to do about them. So um, awesome stuff there, John. Uh, thanks for sharing. 
Yeah, no problem. Uh, we got a lot of stuff to cover today, uh, right, Cal? Yeah, we do. In uh, episode two, we introduced you to one of our most used, our most consistent tool for sparking curiosity. That was the Curiosity Path. Uh, if you did not listen to that episode, you definitely want to go back because this is, uh, you know, the thing that I, I would say you and I, uh, in particular, spent the majority of our, you know, careers to date really focusing in and honing in on this idea of like, how do we engage students? Um, so, you know, we had this focus on it, withholding information to build anticipation, uh, empowering student voice and choice through any Fetter's Notice and Wonder protocol. And we talked about how we try to give students an opportunity to put some skin into the game by having them estimate or make predictions before unleashing them on a low floor, high ceiling task. Right, right, right. So what are we doing today there, John? uh, Today, we're going to take some time and we're going to chat about how can we ensure uh, that all students are able to access the math. Uh, when you think about when we talked about sparking curiosity, we, we were generating, uh, this, this mystery about how we can do the, how we can get into the math. Uh, and, and we got a lot of engagement out of that. But then how do we keep the learning going? What are we doing in our class to promote deep thinking about the math, uh, that we're coming? So we're calling that the fueling sense making. And what we've got for you today are four go-to tools, uh, that we can implement uh, on a regular basis in our classrooms. And, uh, you know, we, d- we did reference it uh, back, I believe it was episode one, when uh, when we addressed this, this idea that, you know, we had spent so much time, and, and especially as secondary teachers, I, I bet you anybody in that, you know, grade, I don't know, middle school years, like grade seven to 12-ish would probably relate that it's almost like we are so hyper-focused on engagement because so many kids are disengaged that we sort of lose sight of why we're trying to engage them in the first place, which is to help them understand the mathematics. So it was like once you and I sort of got, you know, felt like we were starting to get somewhere with sparking curiosity with our students and developing this idea, this curiosity path to keep kids interested in leaning into the math, um, we realized that, oh my gosh, now they're interested, but they're still not really making connections in the math. And and Mm -hmm. that's because we were, we were like kind of leaving all of the, all of the math behind just so hyper-focused focused on that curiosity. So uh, that's kind of what we want to talk about today. Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here, and I've got just a quick message specifically for our district level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole. Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours. So don't wait. Head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. You know, when I think back to uh, how I I was teaching lessons, like I, I mentioned earlier, 
Um, we, we generate all that curiosity and then I'm just going to go back and I'm going to pre-teach or I'm going to teach these lessons the very traditional way. Um, and, and when I do that, like I'm doing all the thinking we, we talked about that in our episode too, also that, you know, when you're teaching from examples and you're doing all the talking and walking kids through, and, and you know what I mean by, by doing all the talking, because I used to, I used to be the teacher that said, uh, I want to have. I'm doing my examples as my lesson and I want to have student engagement with that lesson. So you would ask questions to the kids and the questions I would ask would be very trivial type questions so that they would feel success because uh, I did not want them to all of a sudden be wrong in front of everyone. You know, you know, the questions I'm talking about, like we're doing a calculation on the board and I just ask someone to multiply and they all they have to do is get their calculator and half the class was lost and the other class are, are with me. Uh, but they, uh, the kids who are with me are like, yeah, they were just going to multiply Mr. Orr here. Uh, well, really, do we really need to do that? Um, so like I was, I was doing all the thinking, walking them through the strategies and they weren't doing any of the thinking. They're just not really attempting it themselves. Uh, so, so like where, where was the actual thinking and what we want to do here today is, is the techniques on, on how we can make that happen. Like what are, what can we do to help? Uh, students d- develop that deeper thinking during the lesson and, uh, and and almost take you as a teacher out of that role of being the one that gives them everything to do all the time. Well, it's interesting too, John. Uh, today, uh, there was a great discussion. One of the kindergarten teachers I was uh, I was talking with and and they were sharing out to the whole group was referencing like something as basic as like at an early age, like when you're four, when you're five, when you're six, Uh, even just like doing everything for kids. So like picturing, I'm picturing you in your math class and, you know, you doing the examples and then you're just throwing up these lob balls like, hey, uh, somebody, uh, you know, help me out with uh, seven times three, right? right? And, you know, the kids who don't know their math facts can't put their hands up. And then the ones who do don't want to do it because it's so obvious to them. There, You know, there's no engagement. It's very similar to like these kids in kindergarten who know how to put on their coat, but yet, you know, mom and dad always do it for them. Right. So it's like, Mm. you know, they made this parallel to how, you know, oftentimes like we don't allow, you know, we don't allow kids to do, to do the work, whether it's like physical work of like, you know, putting their shoes on and and trying to help them learn how to tie their own shoes. Or, you know, later on when they're in a high school classroom where it's like actually doing the thinking. Um, So when we, we get into these four go-to tools, uh, the first one we want to talk about is this idea of concrete, like thinking of using concrete tools, concrete manipulatives, because there is this, this developmental continuum of like starting with, you know, things that are tangible, like in the real world, things I can touch and feel and manipulate um, this, this level of, of abstraction that we're asking kids to do in math class without having something to like touch and, and manipulate and move is really, really difficult. So like the concrete manipulatives looks very different from class to class to class, but really all it is, is this idea that when we're 
starting with a new idea or something that, you know, we're trying to uh, increase or increase our depth of understanding, we want to go back to the concrete to make sure that students get that conceptual understanding, whether it be counting in quantity and students counting objects like sets of objects on the table, or whether it's students like multiplying two digit by two digit and actually using base 10 blocks, or whether it's kids in, you know, in algebra one or in for, for us, grade nine and grade 10 here in Ontario, for them to be working with algebra tiles to actually physically manipulate um, like concrete manipulatives is such a, such an amazing tool that I did not use for the majority of my career until right. I finally had that epiphany that, oh my gosh, this stuff is not only helpful for the kids, but I'm going to argue that it's like necessary for them to right. do this because not all students can visualize and, and be able to make those connections between the concrete and the abstract or the symbolic notation that we use in math class every day. Right. Right. Like, like I'm thinking, I'm thinking about like, there's this misconception, huge misconception that uh, if, and especially in high school, that if you need to use manipulatives, you're operating at a lower, like, you know, or lower functional uh, thinking level than someone who doesn't need uh, those manipulatives, right. which is completely false. Uh, we, we've got like, so, you know, like there's the future, the future of learning and the future of higher level learning is done so visually and so much of us learn visually um, not abstractly, but you know, when I'm thinking about teaching those algebra concepts in my in my grade nine and grade ten class, I I used to always just go straight to the symbolic representation of what was going on in class, like three x plus six x, and you know how many kids are are mis, you know making mistakes on what x plus x is. Some of them writing x squared. Some of them are doing when you're or when you're doing uh, x times x, they're writing two x, and and they're not sure why. And these are the these are the issues when they come out. We're like, why am I ever going to use this? They just don't see what's going on because they just see these these symbolic, abstract representations of of things uh, have no point, and they just don't get the idea of where that comes from. That's it's huge. It's it's a huge thing that that uh, that we've got to address, and uh, and and I want to make the case that it's not it's not for you know kids that are weaker that should use these manipulatives. And, and I was, you know, I was the teacher that thought that for a while. I, as I said, in, in, in our first few episodes, and you know, I, I was the traditional math teacher for years, the traditional high school teacher that it was that teacher that you had as a, uh, as your teacher, that was me. And, and I had those thoughts that, you know, if you need to use these manipulatives or these algebra tiles, you can, but you know, we, we want to do this thing over here. And, uh, when I, when I made a, a conscious effort to change, to teach all of my algebra concepts for all of my classes through, uh, concrete manipulatives, uh, this is where I had the most success with those students. I had higher level students, you know, completing the square in their heads, uh, I had never seen that before that uh, you took a, you know, a complex algorithm of completing the square and trying to teach it to a kid that was the most mis you know, the most, uh, the skill that was, you know, m made the most mistakes on uh, for classes. And now all of a sudden you got kids completing squares in their heads. Uh, I was sold. Right, right. I was sold right there and yeah. thinking like, this is something that we need to be doing all the time. Concrete manipulatives are, are a must for, for our, our, are making kids understand 
uh, our math. Well, it's funny, you know, I'm, li- I'm listening to you and, and, you know, I, I, you had mentioned, you know, like, I, you know, I, I originally thought that that same misconception about, you know, students who quote unquote need the manipulatives are, are the weaker students. And, um, you know, I, I am going to just go and say on record, it was like well over half of my career that I, I had that understanding and, and the, or misconception, I should, should say. And the real reason why was because I didn't understand how to use them. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, you know, I, I don't, I never, never, never want to blame teacher point fingers because the reality is it's not like it's not like we you know we taught without manipulatives because we knew that what they were what they were useful for and and opted not to because we just didn't want to help our students i just had no idea how to actually use them and you know the part that's uh that's really hard to break in a classroom is this idea that like you know you got the bin of manipulatives in our district we have this big tub that uh, every elementary class gets one and you know it's it might be a big yellow one or like if it's an intermediate kid it's a red one and it goes in the class and it's like if that tub sits on the shelf and the instructions like my instructions to the student is uh, whoever needs manipulatives can come up and grab them like in my mind I might be thinking what I'm saying is like yeah like everyone can use them but like what a student's hearing is like Anyone who walks up there is doing the walk of shame to go grab those manipulatives because I I need them and nobody else does. And I'm going to argue that there's tons of kids in that class that are using symbolic notation and procedures, but they, like you said, they, they have no idea what they're doing. Like when I'm, when I'm adding or multiplying and I don't know whether I'm squaring or if I'm, I'm adding the coefficients, I have no idea because I've never seen it in the real world. And the kids who get the advantage are really just the kids who have like the you know that that skill that memorization skill that I know for me speaking for myself that's what got me through school as quote unquote a math guy and I got a math degree based on the the fact that I could memorize stuff but I had no idea like no conceptual understanding of uh, of the work that I was actually doing in class. I, I don't know if you feel the same way there, John, but I, I know tons of people that, you know, we we were the lucky ones because we managed to be able to memorize enough to get us to that place that got us, you know, into college or university or into the program we needed. Whether we felt we were math people or not, it was right. like we just, we had enough to get us to where we needed to get to, but not all kids have that that luxury of of having a really good memory for just memorizing straight up. No, I was I was exactly in that those shoes, same as you, and and it wasn't until I I started teaching, and I think as a lot of us, it's not until we start teaching math where a lot of things are clicking, and and that's something I I want to change for my students is I don't want them to be that person that realizes later um, that you know that these concepts were, you know, more clear than they were. Uh, like here's, here's a, there's two, two examples where this was very clear for me uh, as a teacher, but I didn't know anything about it as a student. One is the Pythagorean theorem. And, and I don't know if, if maybe, maybe you had a better teacher than I did when, when you were in school, but uh, I remember memorized the Pythagorean theorem as a squared plus B squared equals C squared. Uh, you know, and C squared was always the hypotenuse. And that was, that was it. It was just completely algebraic yet. I, it, it wasn't until I started teaching where you actually could do the geometric 
uh, visual representation of the Pythagorean theorem and build squares off the side lengths of those uh, uh, of, the, of a triangle and uh, and see that the areas of those two two smaller squares add to the bigger square. Like that blew my mind as yeah. as a teacher. I was teaching when I had that that revelation. I was like, oh my gosh, I've been teaching for years, just doing it, just like you said, and I had. Right. No idea. Like it, it wasn't even. It, it wasn't like I. I tried to figure it out, and and I and I wasn't like you know keen enough to figure it out. It was just like I just thought like all that mattered was this formula. So I just mm-hmm. never thought to think of like where it came from, right. and that was like completely a misguided way for me to approach teaching math. Right, and think about feeling sense making, and once. Uh, you know, I, when I taught only using the formula for many years, kids, kids are making mistakes on when do I add the A squared and the B squared? And when do I have to subtract? And you know, when I'm finding the length that's shorter, like there was always mistakes there and they, and they consistently made that mistake over and over again about, about finding the shorter length. And, and when we started, you know, first started with, concrete manipulatives we we would have a triangle uh to scale on our desk and we start to fill in the squares off the sides with counters um they're actually using the exact same number of little tiny unit squares and then move them around to the to the hypotenuse and fill in the exact same number of little squares to fill on the other side like they actually see that when you start to to do the reverse, like say I have the area of the larger square to start and I have to find the smaller square, like they know to subtract, like you can clearly experience with the, t- with the little counter tiles or when you're drawing a picture, the visual, um, you can clearly see that you do need to subtract these areas so that you can, you can find the length and uh, right. all those arrows started like dropping so away. Obvious. Like, yeah. And, and that's when we're talking about this fueling sense making, uh, we're trying to take away like, and it, they help with those mistakes, you know, like the kids are seeing why things work. And, and these are things that I just memorized. I didn't, uh, I memorized, right. Hey, I'm finding a short length. I do this instead, instead of actually understanding why I should subtract. Right. And, and, you know, something really interesting to make a link down for, for some of our, uh, our teachers, uh, teaching in the younger grades, uh, you know, when I'm working with my primary teachers in the district, you know, we talk about, uh, as I mentioned, counting and quantity, but then early addition and subtraction. And I mean, the same issue happens there, even though in primary classrooms, I'm going to, you know, hats off. Uh, I think they do a great job in trying to make things concrete and make things visual mm-hmm. for their students. But in many cases, like we're, we're still kind of get, get caught in that trap of, you know, putting the anchor chart up on the wall. And it's like, these words mean addition and these words mean subtraction. When in reality, you could take any of those words and rearrange the sentence to make it one or the other. And that's what gets kids on these, uh, these standardized tests here in Ontario, EQAO, or if it's park testing in the U.S. or you know, whatever, whatever, uh, jurisdiction, jurisdiction you're in. Um, the reality is like, this is something that's not just happening in the middle school classroom or, or in the high school classroom, but it's happening early on when we're teaching kids to memorize, you know, terms that mean, you know, one thing or, or telling them that you add or subtract or multiply or divide when you see key words, rather than having a understanding of the situation, of the context of the problem, and being to attack it with concrete manipulatives and 
useful representations, which I, I think is a, a good segue for us to mm-hmm. jump into our second go-to tool, which is this idea of using multiple representations, not only as a tool for thinking, but also a tool for representing and and sharing to communicate our thinking in order to make connections so that we can build like a solid foundation, like a solid conceptual foundation so that we can eventually build procedural fluency without just blindly memorizing steps and procedures along the way. For sure, for sure. Like uh, in in my classes, showing kids multiple representations, having them them write out the different ways to represent an under in um, a particular topic has has really changed the way things are going in my room and the success kids are having. They, you know, when I'm talking about linear relations and on writing uh, tables and graphs and 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 uh equations when i when i would normally teach or normally i mean you know my past self would teach this uh i'm thinking you know very traditionally units it's okay we're going to we're going to start with graphs and then we're going to move into uh or start with tables and we're going to move into graphs and then we're going to move into equations after that whereas now i like i like to start with a lot of you know i start kind of in the middle and then we move this way and then we come back to graphs and then we, and then we move into equations. And then we go back to tables, like showing the connections between the, the representations is huge. Uh, and that and it's not just for that. It's, it's for all, all the different topics. And uh, it's definitely something that we need to do more of so that kids can make connections amongst those themselves. And I think that's the big, the big thing is, is that you can show them all you want, but it, it's the fact that they see it over and over again that they will start to make the connections themselves. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right, and, and something that uh, I think may resonate with with folks listening is, you know, oftentimes we get challenges. You know, you get emails. I've been I've been receiving emails, or we see tweets on Twitter and things like that, where people are saying like, ah. I'm, my kids can't problem solve, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you hear in the media, like it's, it's so interesting how in the media, the media and the, you know, the uh, politicians, they all push for this idea of back to basics, like kids don't know uh, their math facts as being the big issue. But then when you talk to, to educators, usually the big issue isn't those like basic calculations. It's problem solving where students have to actually like think to do something. And, and what we're finding in our district, like our math team, uh, we, we, I've got a great math team, uh, Yvette Lehman, Andrea Long, uh, Lewis Longmuir, uh, Shelly Pike and Angeline Humber are all part of our math team at Greater Essex. And what we notice when we go and work in schools and sit with students is we see the students who struggle with problem solving are the students who tend to tend to know like the, the, the steps and procedures, but they only know one way, like they're not mm-hmm. strategically competent. They just know the way the teacher showed them. And if they don't recognize a problem as being solvable with that particular strategy, then they're, they're like they're out to lunch. So it's like they just it's like they lack the tools and representations 
in order to actually like take the context of the problem and actually use a tool for thinking, not just right. to like explain the answer they got, but to be able to use it as a tool to help them get to an answer. They just sit there and it's like, they, you know, they're just spinning their wheels in the mud. And often what that leads to over time is you see more kids that disengage completely and just leave questions blank. You know, you right. see like that blank question. And we're always asking to teachers are saying like, why didn't they even like give it a shot, you know? And they, they, they kind of, it's easy for us to maybe blame the student like, ah, oh, geez, Tommy never puts a full effort in. But meanwhile, Tommy's sitting there going like, I have no idea where to start. Right. You know, I don't have a tool and I don't have any representation for me to, to actually leverage to do anything worthwhile on the page. Right. And that, you know, this brings up, uh, you know, an even bigger issue in, in in how we structure our lessons to begin with and and going back to like kids we always want kids to persevere through problems and and they're in the, like like this kid you're referencing is you know just giving up but uh, what time you know what part of your teaching uh this class or that kid or did did uh, did you show them how to problem solve and persevere like we don't we you know we we assume kids come into to your class and problem solving is like something that they're supposed to naturally be good at like and and when you think you're going to teach problem solving you'd say like okay i'm going to do a word problem okay we're going to get the highlighters out guys and uh, we're going to highlight the keywords and, and like if you think that's which what's teaching problem solving uh i think i think we got some issues because Problem solving is putting them in uh, situations where they don't know what to do and helping them make those connections, helping them see the representation so that they can start and get a small win that leads to the next win and leads to the next win. Um, like that's that's a big issue for sure about kids quitting too early. Um, and, and, you know, multiple representations can help with that and uh, and and teaching kids how to problem solve will help with the, with the multiple representations. Hey there, math moment makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, do us this huge solid. Uh, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. I, I think you nailed it there, John. And, and you know, uh, sometimes you and I, when we get passionate, you know, we uh, we really, you know, are, are trying to articulate some of these key ideas. But again, like making sure that we don't forget that, uh, you know, both you and I were the guys mm -hmm. saying, hey, you know, get that highlighter out or, you know, right. circle no, the yeah, word or whatever sure. it was. Like we were doing all those things. And I think one of the biggest challenges we face as teachers like it doesn't matter if you're a math teacher what teacher you are is that like we got into this industry into this business to help kids and that is probably our like worst quality like it's great <laughs> to know that people want to help but the problem is is like we help too much and, you know, we do all of the thinking because we want them to be successful. But unfortunately, uh, many times, like the success that we are, you know, we're perceiving 
oftentimes is us kind of doing the work and then the students aren't aren't actually like getting that learning opportunity you know we've sort of like we've sort of taken that from them and i i've robbed a lot of kids of their their opportunity to think and uh uh boy i'll tell you you know i i I definitely feel <laughs> feel remorse every time I run into uh, students, you know, in the, the first eight years of my career and say, ah, you know, darn, I wish I could go back and do it again. But right. I think the key is as long as when we know better, we do better. And, and that's, uh, I think, the big piece for me is just like once I knew that I needed to focus on representations, it was like, man, I had a lot of learning to do and I'm still engaging in that learning. I know you are as well. So sure. um, something that we're going to continue to push for. For sure. Uh, you want to move into the third um big big tool go to tool we've got uh, we got two more go to tools out of our four and actually i think these two tools coming up are very much related to multiple representations what do you think i was going to say the exact same thing you know it's almost like a you know, uh, uh, a part of multiple representations, but it's also, it's kind of like the next step after concrete manipulatives. Right. And um, the one we're talking about is visuals. Some call them pictorial uh, representations. Uh, some call them, uh, um, 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 oh, darn, I'm losing it now. Oh, iconic. That was the word I was looking for. So, you know, different research uh, states, different terms for it, but it's like this stage where like students are ready to move from like this concrete representation to the visual. And, and actually, if people are interested in that, that per- progression to learn more about it, uh, I, I reference some research called concreteness fading. Some know it as CRA. Um, actually, there's uh, in, in Great Britain, there's uh, some research we came across. A colleague of mine, uh, Chris Knight, uh, went to pre-service in, in uh, Great Britain, and they called it ELPS, hmm. um, which was about like experience language pictorial and uh what was the uh, symbolic was the uh the last one in that continuum so many different ways to you know sort of reference this idea but if you're interested in learning more about it um i've got a link here uh, makemathmoments.com forward slash concrete that'll bring you to a article on concreteness fading or cra or elps or whatever you want to call it Uh, but this progression so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, visuals here. Um, how how are you using visuals in your class, John? Right. Like what 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 value are they bringing to you, and uh, more in particular, your students that you're actually teaching? You, yeah, yeah. Uh, so like one one right off the top of my head is is one we've kind of referenced already, which you know follows that concrete model, uh, concrete fading model that you've just referenced. That uh, when I introduce algebra concepts in say grade 10 uh and in, in, in this is a grade 10 applied class where we're we're working with um you know concepts like the distributive property with algebra and factoring and uh, eventually uh the grade 10 academic would be completing the square uh, we've already we've already kind of said that I, I will start all of that with all of my students with algebra tiles. So that concrete uh, start, having them manipulate and make rectangles for factoring. Um, and then what, what, what is great, and, and, and I want to build towards efficiency with them, is that eventually students will decide themselves that they can, they can be faster uh, with, that, with uh, withdrawing an image 
instead of using the tiles themselves. So they, they end up starting to draw the tiles instead of use the tiles once they become very comfortable with them. Um, and then, then that drawing of tiles actually ends up being drawn of an area model and they're using an area model to represent the tiles. Uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of like a building towards efficiency. And finally, you know, the students after ready for that, they will move from the visual representation into a symbolic representation, uh, which is what, you know, traditionally we would just jump to that. And, uh, and, uh, year after year. Yeah. And, and my students, you know, they're, they're progressing through this, this nice, uh, you know, very visual representation of, of, uh, algebra concepts that traditionally are very abstract. Right. Right. You know, it, it's interesting, like, uh, you know, for those listening, um, well, I guess, you know, if you're not listening, you wouldn't be listening, <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> but for those, for those who are uh, listening in, you basically, you've done a great job, like describing that concreteness fading model, like starting with the concrete, moving to a visual and then to the symbolic. And, and I want to be very clear because, you know, sometimes people aren't, aren't very happy about the language of uh, how they call it concreteness fading, suggesting like, you know, once you move away from concrete, you never go back, but it's actually an iterative model. So, you know, you're in grade 10, you're saying, and everybody in your class is starting with the concrete. And it's not like it's the first time they've ever seen the concrete. No, they've actually done this back in grade five here in Ontario when they do double digit by double digit multiplication. The standard algorithm can be represented using base 10 blocks in an, in an array, which then develops into an area model, which then develops into that standard algorithm symbolically. So it's this idea that like as the complexity in the mathematics, as we move down the mathematical developmental continuum, as we get deeper and deeper, we always want to come back to the concrete to like sort of like almost like remind ourselves of like, yeah, like let's not lose our way. You know, when you, you know, you get hiking in the woods and it's like you lose track of where you are. Like it's so easy in math land to start using symbols and procedures. And then the next thing you know, you're like completing the square and you're like, how the heck did I even get here? So this is kind of like a, a reminder for us to always go back to that concrete, to that tangible um, you know, experience for me to go, oh yeah, oh yeah, th this is why this works. And then we sort of move towards that abstraction again. And then as that new layer comes in, it's like, well, we got to go back to that concrete and let's do it again. So you, you never want to like forget like home base is concrete, right? Like mm -hmm. home base is, is reality. It's 3D. It's like the world around us. We don't want to lose track of where we began uh, and, and sort of get lost in all the symbols and, and procedures. For sure. For sure. Um, I'm just thinking I, I was, I was reminded when you were talking about uh, that uh, there's you've, you've built a resource purely about math and visual representations. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, actually, um, yeah, that, I wasn't expecting to talk uh, too much about this tonight here, but I think it's a great uh, opportunity. Um, a site called mathisvisual.com. If, uh, if you've never been to it, definitely check it out. Uh, it's kind of put together to create all kinds of visual prompts. And, you know, I've, I've become pretty obsessed ever since, you know, beginning this journey of fueling sense making and playing with concrete and multiple representations and this idea of 
of visuals. Um, when students are at that visual stage, like I find that if I can, if I can like show them how it develops and, and that's really the, the goal of this website is to give you some visuals that, uh, that are animated, uh, using keynote and magic move in order to kind of like build a conceptual understanding, make sure that we don't lose track of, of why we do things. So, you know, for example, recently I, I had released a, uh, you know, a, a why, why the formula of, uh, finding the mean works and we do it all. I call it concretely, but it's, it's actually a visual animation to represent what you would do with concrete ma manipulatives. So that's a little confusing, but, <laughs> uh, but th those are all there. We've got about, uh, I want to say 35 or so prompts so far. Uh, the goal is to, uh, is to continue just, you know, tossing up these, uh, these visual prompts. And I, I've tried to make it so you could actually use them in class like a, a, a minds on or a, you know, sort of like a number talk at the beginning of your class. So I give you some spots where you can pause the animation and give kids an opportunity to notice and wonder and, and you know, kind of play with the math themselves with concrete manipulatives or visuals themselves. So, uh, yeah, so I, I think that's a nice uh, a nice website to pair. Again, mathisvisual.com. Definitely uh, check it out and, you know, use anything uh, you feel might be uh, might be helpful for, uh, for you and your students. Oh, great, great, great. Uh, let's move on to... Uh, to our fourth uh, represent uh, our, our fourth uh, go-to tool for building uh, and fueling sense making in our students, which is uh, uh, student-generated solutions or student-generated algorithms, ones that they've created themselves. Uh, I, this one's a big one for me, and I and I know this is a, a big one for you, Cal. And it's, it goes back again I, uh, to that kind of multiple representations, and and for me lately, uh, I. I've I've uh, I've been a big and strong proponent of uh, the five practices for orchestrating productive mathematical discussions. If uh, you want to pick up that book, uh, it's kind of like my guide for how I structure my lessons right now. And uh, this one's a big part of it because one of one of the things that you you want to do from this book is when we give kids tasks. So you know, in our last episode, we talked about how to spark curiosity with tasks. Uh, but once you've sparked that curiosity and and got them into uh, the task at hand, um, we want to not just you know you 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 don't want to show them how to do it. You want to let them uh, show or attempt a solution that can do a couple things. Uh, one is it's going to build that resilience that they have because now they've got an experience solving a problem that they don't know how to solve right from the get-go. And the second is that you get to see what solutions they're going to come up with first. You get you get a lot of formative assessment information coming your way when that happens. And 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 when they start to generate those solutions, um, you you get to make those connections amongst the class. They 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 get to fuel their sense making. You get to fuel and and fill in gaps uh, from what they what uh, what they're showing you. Uh, for example, like it's it can be as simple as taking uh you know uh, like for example in today today's lesson for my advanced functions class. Uh, you know, the higher you get, the the more abstract some of this math gets. And uh, we're working with logarithms. And I know I'm scaring some people right now uh, when I say the word logarithm. But uh, we were solving, ah. yeah, we were solving logarithm equations, and and uh, it was, a, you know, it's a very procedural type of thing. But instead of just standing at the front and saying, you know what, we're going to do these seven examples or these five examples, I'm just going to walk you through it because uh, nobody wants, to, nobody really wants to do that. Um, 
I have a progression of equations that are, you know, start easy and get hard. And uh, we, uh, I put them all up on the board and kids are working through them at their own pace. And we pause them. Uh, we pause the class to go and look at one solution and say, why, why did that technique work? Uh, what I love is that m different students are going to come up with different techniques. Uh, and, you know, uh, none of the, like, and if I had taught that lesson in that traditional way, they would have seen one technique, not three different techniques uh, that we can now weigh the options of whether, you know, this, this is more efficient or less efficient. Um, and that doesn't have to be for an advanced functions class. This could be for any class where you want to you want to look at the techniques to solve different equations. And uh, that's uh, for me, that's been mind blowing uh, for me and my students. Yeah, no, you've said so much good stuff there. I, I'm trying to jot down on paper here to remind me to uh, to address all of it. I know I won't be able to, but uh, you know, you you mentioned uh, mentioned a few things in there, and and one was this idea, like you know, how you've you've intentionally selected those problems to uh, create almost like I'm going to use the word like a string of problems. And, and the reason I'm saying string is because I wanted to talk a little bit about Kathy Fosno and, and she actually creates number strings and, and she has a, a resource, a fabulous resource called mini lessons. Um, you know, mm -hmm. more and more specifically for our elementary teachers, as well as some middle school teachers, um, to use kind of like number talks, but, uh, but she really has a focus on the models and the representations that she's using. She does a great job of, of highlighting how, um, like why she's selecting them and, and where they, you know, where they are in the progression, the developmental continuum. She likes to call it a landscape, like a mathematical landscape. Um, and, and the reason I thought this was an interesting connection on the fly is because I wanted to reference when I think about student generated solutions and algorithms, I am thinking about something she says, which is that she doesn't want to fix the mathematician. She wants to help the mathematician see their strategy through and try to help them seek out strategies with increasing sophistication. So like, this is this idea, like I used to do this all the time where like kids would do a strategy and I would walk up to them and be sort of like, yeah, that's okay. But like, I want you to do it this way. You know, it's like you're grabbing them by the collar and saying like, come on over here. And clearly the students like not doing or thinking along the same path that I am. And why would they? I mean, I have so much more experience. So it's like being able to take these student generated solutions or student algorithms that they're creating and trying to help them, you know, kind of develop how clever they are at solving these problems. Another word that, uh, that Kathy uses a lot. And uh, my colleague Yvette always references, um, you know, so for me, that that's a big one is like, this is an opportunity when we give kids the opportunity to solve problems without pre-teaching them, mm -hmm. that we can look at what they're doing and look at their strategies. And this is the hard work is looking at the strategy and thinking, what tool or representation can I connect their work to? So that's kind of like a, a five practices move that mm -hmm. you re referenced earlier. We'll put a link in the show notes uh, to the five practices book. Um, but th this idea that it's like, wow, this student did this. How can I take that piece of student work to honor the thinking of that student in my consolidation, but also help to share what tool and representation might be a little bit more powerful than that original solution strategy. So just this idea of like taking that work and using it to help 
push kids forward without like dragging them through the mud to get there, right? right. Because we all know what that's going to do. I did it for years. I grabbed the kid's collar, we bring them over here, and now they're lost. So even though I'm thinking it's a more efficient strategy, yeah. it's a zero efficiency strategy for a kid if they have no idea what they're doing. So like we have to take their most efficient strategy, which is what they just did, and try to help them kind of get to the next step in that journey, yeah. right? Hard work, but necessary work for us all. Yeah, hard definitely is definitely not the quick the quick route, but it's definitely hard route hard uh, hard route. You know, I I when you were just talking there, I, I get reminded of of you know a situation where uh, I've asked you know I'll, I'll, that traditional class where you've you've outlined how to solve, say, a proportion problem. Uh, and you set up the proportion and you show them into steps to go through. You create the algorithm, you're, you know, with the class and you put it up on the board. And, and, uh, you know, you know, when I, when I, pre- when I presented a proportion problem where I had students solve it without me showing them how to do it first, you know, I, I got, I got, you know, three different solutions and, and it, what scared me about, or what worried me, uh, about me just doing it again in front of them and uh, not allowing them to do that, like thinking the years, years past is that there was probably a student sitting in my class who solved it, not the way I solved it, uh, on the board, that efficient strategy, like you said, like I went right to the efficient strategy and they solved it a different way. And, and since their way they're solving it in their head and is not matching the one I'm doing on the blackboard, they're thinking theirs is completely wrong. And, and, right, and that's, right. and that's, you know, that scares me because like I made that, I made that student think that, you know, I, I made them think that what they're thinking was wrong because it wasn't presented on the board as right. And, uh, and they, right. they would have had that connection. They're like, well, that's wrong. But even though, you know, they had to probably done some great work here and we just have, like you said, we need to, we need to see what they come up with and then try to connect it to, you know, the efficient strategy or, or, or just talk about how they, how they solve that problem. So, uh, yeah, lots of good points points for this, uh, this final one. You, uh, you, you sort of made me a bit sad there. I was reflecting as you were talking and I'm going, yeah, like how many kids did I, you know, did I make feel that way? Right. And you know, they're not raising their hand to share, you know, they're like, Oh gee, I'm going to erase this now. Um, so yeah, like we, you know, we have to be uh, hypersensitive to that. Uh, so, you know, as we're looking at these four tools that we're outlining, uh, these four tools are, are pretty big. And, and I wrote down a note here that I never got to, but earlier you were talking about, you know, how you started concrete with, uh, with this idea of like factoring in grade 10 and working with algebra. Uh, I'm going to argue, I see the exact same progression in a grade five class when they're learning how to uh, do double digit by double right. digit multiplication. Like it's almost identical right? Like you swap out the base 10 blocks for algebra tiles, like it's the same stuff going on. And, you know, something I wanted to make sure that we mentioned was this idea that like, not only was it, was it a a misguided or a misunderstanding, a misconception that using manipulatives was for students who struggled, but I'm at the point now where I'm finally realizing that kids in my class who cannot represent it concretely are not mathematically proficient because they don't know what it is they're doing. If they're doing the symbolic representation and they can't show me a visual or they can't show me a concrete representation, they're actually not proficient. But like in my old mind, I would have said, 
the student who's, you know, the student who can do it with concrete manipulatives only. And then there's a kid over here who can do it only with symbolic representation. Like, let's say if it's, if it is, uh, you know, double digit multiplication, you know, using the standard algorithm and this, this student over here is using base 10 blocks. Like in my mind, I used to think that the kid who used the standard algorithm was like more proficient, meaning like gets a higher grade. And what I realize now is they get probably the same grade and it's not that like that good right. because they don't have a complete under like they're not proficient with this process and that's what we're really after here we want kids that are proficient mathematically proficient uh, as described in the adding it up document uh, which uh, you know we'll do an episode about that that's a whole other story um, but that's something I wanted to make sure we highlighted it's not just like an you know something we do to get to the symbolic and that's it and then we leave it in the dust it's it's like a necessary step and if we're not doing that then we're actually like we're actually hiding connections in mathematics from students and and that's not to make anybody feel bad because I was there I totally get it uh, but it is to make us realize that hey like we've got some work to do. And I know I still got a lot to do. You got a lot to do. Um, but we do need to do that work. And it, it's got to be something on our mind for sure. Right. For sure. For sure. So let's uh, let's do a quick recap here that uh, we wanted to give you four go-to tools to fuel sense making in your students. Uh, we, you know, sparking curiosity is not enough. We need to fuel their sense making. And these are just four. There's many. Uh, different ways you can fuel sense making uh, that we didn't even get into today, but uh, four that we we uh, you know think very highly of. Uh, the first one we talked about was concrete manipulatives, um, getting that uh, that concrete uh, down before we move to a stra- uh, abstraction or symbolic representations. The uh, the second one we had was uh, how can we use multiple representations to fuel sense making. Uh, we talked about visuals, which is our third go-to tool. Like visuals will help with fueling sense making, and the last one we just finished talking about, which is uh, student-generated solutions or student-generated algorithms, and how they can be used uh, to go deeper in fuel sense making with our students. Whoa, like that's like a lot of content mm-hmm. today. Uh, I'm looking at the time on uh, on our recording and- uh, We're getting close. Yeah, hopefully uh, if you're still with us, that means, you know, that that's a good thing. That means that you're like, you're in, you know, uh, neck deep, not even waist deep. You're like neck deep with us, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, this is like the second part of the three-part framework. We talked about sparking curiosity in the last episode. Today was fueling sense-making. And again, these aren't like, this isn't like everything in it, you know, all the things that we want to do with fueling sense-making, but just like four big ones that we want to focus on. Uh, In the next uh, edition or the next uh, episode, we're going to be looking at igniting your teacher moves, which is the third part of that framework. So we're going to give you a little summary of that. Um, We have been having a blast Uh, with these first few episodes. I can't believe we got three in the bag Mm -hmm. already. Um, And, uh, you know, this next episode will be, uh, I believe it's going to be the last one of just you and I going back and forth because, you know, we're going to be uh, talking with some others in the math space, uh, doing some interviews, as well as we're going to be working with some other math educators who have been in touch with us over the the past couple of years. Some of them that have taken our online workshop um, that would love to come on and really just like, you know, kind of riff on some ideas about like, you know, a challenge 
in their math class or, you know, uh, a question or, or concern that they might have. And uh, we're, we're going to try to, you know, kind of build on the collective knowledge of all three of us when they show up. And, uh, and hopefully that'll, that'll help some people listening as well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to having the, those people on uh, this podcast. Uh, so in order, uh, so you don't miss it, do uh, miss out on those episodes. Uh, uh, they're going to come each week. So be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, wherever you get your uh, podcast from uh, whatever you prefer to use also if you're liking what you're hearing please share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach a wider audience by leaving us a review on itunes uh, show notes for this episode and links that we've talked about uh, can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode three uh, that was makemathmoments.com forward slash episode three. You can also find Make Math Moments on all social media platforms and seek out our free private Facebook group, uh, which is called Math Teaching and Learning K-12. to Just type that in Facebook. You uh, can join uh, that uh, private Facebook group. Uh, we chat about lots of different things in there. Um, so that's uh, that's Beauty. coming up for sure. Awesome. Yeah. So again, as we said, episode four coming to you right away. So stick around for that. We're going to be going through igniting teacher moves. It's going to be a doozy. And uh, I'll be honest, John, it's going to be tough to do it justice in one yeah. episode, but we're going to do our best to uh, kind of, uh, you know, skim the surface on it, get people thinking about it, give you some resources uh, to go and, uh, you know, kind of chew on. Not interested in waiting until then. Why not watch our four part video series to help build resilient problem solvers who don't want to stop learning math when the bell rings? You can find that free four lesson video series at makemathmoments.com forward slash lesson one. That again is makemathmoments.com forward slash lesson one. Well, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's, it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle, walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook. 
After completing that workbook, you're gonna have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.